you would, take your uh, Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we um, begin our month of officer nominations. We'll be looking uh, this morning at uh, Paul's words to Timothy regarding the office of the elder and the qualifications of, of the elder. Uh, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read from this portion of God's word? I'll be reading from uh, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, and verse 16. Pay careful attention. This is God's word. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil." And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. In verse 16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father of mercies, we thank you for your word. Uh, We humbly submit ourselves to you and ask that this seed of your word, now sown among us, may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution may cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it out, but that as seed sown in good ground, may it bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold, even as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. We pray that in all these things you would help us to see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Paul the Apostle, uh, drawing near to the end of his life, Uh, set out in in some ways kind of his last will and testament, if you will, uh, through these three letters that he wrote to two pastors, Timothy and Titus. Second Timothy is his final uh, letter to Timothy, his final letter that he wrote before he uh, died for his faith. And and part of his purpose in, in writing these letters to Timothy and to Titus was to give instruction as as the apostles were kind of coming to an end, the apostolic foundation had been laid and the apostles were transitioning out of the foundational leadership of the church, Paul desired to give instruction for the life of the church after that foundational period. How should the church continue to build upon the foundation laid for them? How should the church carry out the mission of Christ in the world until he returns? And among Paul's answer, uh, many answers to that question, uh, was this. Not to appoint new apostles or to provide kind of a second generation of apostles to lead in the church, but rather 
Part of his answer was to appoint elders in every city where the church had been established, that the elders would carry out the spiritual leadership of the church and the furthering of the mission of Christ's church and the proclamation of Christ and making disciples of all nations. And so in this passage, as Paul lays out these instructions to Timothy near the end of his life, uh, we see Paul's instruction to him regarding the office of the elder. We see his work, we see his qualifications, and we see his confession. Uh, let's look first at the office of the elder, which is a good work. Notice verse 1. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy saying, It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office or the work of the overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. It's a good work. Notice three things just from this first verse. Paul notes that uh, a man needs to be willing. He needs to have this desire for the office itself. The word there for aspiring to the office kind of is a, a word picture. You can picture somebody grasping for something. There's a, a sense of godly ambition that must be in a man's life if he is to serve as an elder. He must be called by God to serve in this office, and the counterpart to God's call in his life is that he desires it, that he aspires, that he grasps for this good work of being an overseer or an elder. The two are interchangeable. It's the same office. So there's a desire in response to God's call. Notice also the, the work itself. Paul describes the work of the elder as that of an overseer. Uh, we know from the book of Acts and from uh, Titus that overseer and elder, it's the same office. There's not two different offices. An overseer describes the function, the, the very work that the elder is supposed to carry out. The elder is charged with spiritual oversight and care for God's church. The writer to the Hebrews says that those who are in leadership in the church keep watch over the souls of those who belong to Christ and are responsible to give an account for their spiritual care and instruction. It's spiritual oversight. Uh, in 1 Peter, Peter writes that elders are to shepherd the flock. And that shepherding idea is kind of the main way in which the Bible describes the work of the elder. He is to be a shepherd who cares for the sheep belonging to God's flock. That image of the shepherd brings up total care for the spiritual life and health of God's people, those who are entrusted to their care. The work of the elder is that of spiritual oversight. He is called to be a shepherd to the sheep. In thinking about those who are called to be elders, those who are called to be shepherds of the sheep, it's not enough to simply know what the work is, that of oversight. It's not enough to simply have a desire for the office. Paul reminds us here that they also must be qualified. If you can think about it this way, if a man desires to be a shepherd in God's church, he must first be a sheep. He must be a follower of Jesus. He must be growing in Christ. He must exhibit the godly character that belongs to those who claim the name of Jesus. And so we see not only the work of the elder, but also the qualifications 
of the elder that Paul lays out here uh, to Timothy. Now, there's, I should tell you ahead of time, there are 14 qualifications in this list. And sometimes these passages are hard to preach because you feel like you're just kind of going through a grocery list, you know, one item after another, and how are they connected? How do they uh, go together in unity? So I want to give you kind of an umbrella, a big picture to help you think about these qualifications, and then we'll kind of walk through them uh, uh, briefly. We'll kind of get the bird's eye view of these qualifications, if you will. Paul himself gives us kind of an umbrella category for these qualifications in verse 2 where he says an overseer must be above reproach. That, that's the key phrase, that is the key description for Paul in describing the qualifications of those who would serve as an elder. His character must be above reproach. This is uh, character in the sense of what can be observed by others. In other words, when other people see this man... They evaluate his character, his life, his actions. Would they be able to lay any accusation against him? And Paul's qualification here, when he says that a man is to be above reproach, it's a way of saying that you cannot lay blame at this man. You cannot throw an accusation at him that will stick. It's kind of like opposing magnetic forces, or if you will, taking uh, two strips of Velcro from the same side and trying to make them stick together. It won't, it won't stick. It's a statement about character. It's a statement about integrity. That the main qualification for those who would serve as an elder is that he be a man who exhibits godly integrity in his character. Or if you could think about it this way. Who he is at home, at work, at church, it's all the same. Well, you know... There's differences, right? You, you're more comfortable at home than you are at work or at church. But there's a fundamental integrity because the person is the same wherever they are. They exhibit Christ-like character in all of life and in that sense are above reproach. It's kind of like Daniel in the Bible. Daniel Uh, is in a foreign land. He has risen to a place of prominence in the Babylonian kingdom. He is highly trusted by uh, the emperor at this point in his career. And there are people who don't like him. They don't like that Daniel has all this power. They don't like that Daniel is trusted by the king. And so they try to bring him down. They try and try and try to find some area where Daniel exhibits moral failure, some area where he has been corrupted, some area where he is maybe taking a bribe and abusing his power in the kingdom. And they look and they look and they look and they cannot find anything that they can bring against him as an accusation. And so they're forced to get the king to make a law that nobody can pray to anybody but the king for 30 days because they know that Daniel is a man who is above reproach, that Daniel is a man of integrity, that not only is he blameless in his actions, in the empire, but he will not forsake his commitment to his God. Uh, Daniel presents for us a good example of somebody who is above reproach, and that is the umbrella term that Paul gives us for the qualifications of the elders, someone who is gripped by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and exhibits that grace in in their lives in a way that has integrity. They are above reproach. That statement summarizes 
everything that follows. In a man's observable behavior and character, does he exhibit integrity? It's not a standard of perfection or some unattainable level of sinlessness. It is a matter of character and living faithfully in repentance and faith. And so Paul then begins to go through different areas where the elders should be above reproach. Uh, Notice he places emphasis on the family right at the beginning and kind of in the middle of these qualifications. In verse 2, the elder is to be a husband of one wife. And then in verses 4 and 5, he's to be one who manages and oversees his own family well. He is literally to be a one-woman man. Uh, that's, that's what Paul says here. Now, this should not preclude uh, somebody who's unmarried. Uh, Paul is just speaking of what is required of the elder who is married. The focus here is, does he have integrity and faithfulness in his marriage, in his sexual ethics? Is he faithful to his wife? Is he devoted to her? Does he guard himself and others from anything that could appear to be improper? Flirtation, wandering thoughts and eyes, crossing wise boundaries with other women. Is he guarding himself from those things? Uh, Let's get maybe a little bit personal. If you were to look at his internet search, would you be shocked? Paul goes right to this relationship as part of the qualifications of the godly elder because we know that if there is a lack of integrity in this most intimate and trusted of human relationships, that lack of integrity flows over into other relationships as well. So Paul goes right to the most important human relationship that a man can have on this earth outside of his relationship with Jesus his relationship with his wife? Is his heart commitment in marriage united in keeping his marriage vows to his wife? Jesus loves his bride. Jesus laid down his life for his bride, the church. He gave himself up for her, and he loves her with an unblemished, steadfast faithfulness that can never be called into question. All of Jesus' heart and all of his actions demonstrate a single-minded commitment to his bride, the church. And he calls for that same type of single-minded commitment in those who would lead his bride, the church. The elder must exhibit that same type of devotion to his wife, single-minded in this most intimate relationship. Not only does it focus on his relationship with his wife, but also notice Paul's emphasis on his family relationships. You know that um, all of these other qualifications are kind of revealed for what they are in in the home. The family knows the man better than anybody else, or at least they should. Uh, Who you are in your home is who you are. Uh, That that reveals our character in, in, in many clear ways. And so Paul highlights Uh, the family life of the elder. His family life must be exemplary. Not only is his relationship with his wife important, but also his leadership in his home. Paul says that he must be one who manages his household well. Uh, This idea of managing, it sounds kind of cold. We we think of managers, uh, and maybe we have a certain impression of what what that means. But for Paul, this word indicates both 
um, kind of supervision and oversight of his family. He is leading them well. He's keeping his home in good order. But it also has built into it this idea of loving nurture and care. Loving nurture and care. He leads his family well, bearing responsibility for their physical and spiritual needs. And he does it all with dignity, with loving concern for them in such a way that his children willingly follow and respect him. It's not a heavy-handed leadership. It's not bringing down the hammer of authority because you should respect me. It's a loving leadership that shows concern and sympathy for those under his care. It's not a manipulative coercion. Rather, the elder is called to lovingly lead his family with all dignity, not just the appearance of respect, but the genuine article. Family leadership and care is important, as Paul says, because the church is the family of God. Notice verse 5. He asks this rhetorical question. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? This word that Paul uses here, uh, take care of, it's only used one other place in the New Testament to describe the care that the Good Samaritan shows to the man injured on the road. You remember the story. It's a man on his way uh, between Jerusalem and Jericho, and he's assaulted by thieves. He's beaten uh, nearly to death. All all of his possessions are taken from him. He's laid on the side of the road, uh, left for dead. A priest walks by, goes to the other side of the road, keeps on going. A Levite walks by, goes to the other side of the road, keeps on going. And then finally, the last person that any Jew would have expected to show any kind of concern, a a Samaritan, comes by, sees the man in need, bandages up his wounds, cleans him up, puts him on his own donkey, takes him to a hotel, pays for the man to stay at the inn, gives extra money so that the the innkeeper would have what he needed to take care of the man so that he can come back Uh, later and and finish the the work that he had started. And Jesus describes the work of that good Samaritan caring for this injured man in the same way that Paul describes the way the elder should take care of the church. There's nothing cold. There's nothing heavy-handed about that, that. There's nothing manipulative about that. It is the loving concern that comes from a heart that loves the church of Jesus Christ. It requires sacrifice Tenderness, patience, self-giving love, same type of things that are called for uh, in men as they lead their homes and as they care for Christ's church. I'll just point out uh, maybe something that Paul is assuming, but that we we should make explicit. In all of this, as Paul describes these character qualities of the elder, And and that's the focus of the whole thing is on character. There's only one place where he highlights ability, where he says he should be able to teach. Everything else is about character and godly integrity. It should be pointed out that Paul assumes that the elder who exhibits these qualities is known by and knows the church where he serves, that he knows the people, that he knows the needs that he is to care for. He knows the people that he is to care for. And that's, that's a core fundamental requirement of the elder, that he knows and loves the church where Jesus has placed him. So there's a requirement of family life with wife and children. Notice as well, Paul highlights the man's temperament. He's to be temperate, prudent, respectable. He's to be sober-minded, self-controlled, 
alert, not given to excess, cautious, not rushing to judgment, but paying careful attention to the church's spiritual needs and how he might meet them. He's self-controlled. Uh, he has a measure of control over his passions and his, his whim, whims. He's not given to impulsive decisions, driven here and there by whatever is going on around him. He's respectable. He's virtuous. Others see him and can look up to him as a worthy example. Paul also highlights the elder's relationship to those outside of the church in two different ways. He says that the elder is to be hospitable, welcoming and loving the stranger and seeking to bring them into not only his own home, his own life, but to bring them into the very family of God, to exhibit the welcome that Christ gives us in the gospel by welcoming others in that same way. And notice also as well in verse 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Now that's a little bit, that can be a little bit tricky. Uh, sometimes the world outside the church hates the church and maybe is not going to uh, give due credit and respect, uh, recognizing the character of those who belong to the church of Jesus Christ. But when they do, when there is a good reputation with those who live outside of the church, who are outside of the bounds of the people of God, when they can look at a man and say that he has a respectable reputation, that he, he can be trusted in his business dealings, he can be trusted in his friendships, that, that he keeps his word even if it hurts him, that he exhibits godly character even to those outside of the church, when they see that and he has a godly reputation among them, uh, then that is assurance that that reputation is indeed genuine. Paul highlights his need to be able to teach. Uh, the elder has to not only know the truth, but to be able to communicate it and defend it. Paul gives these instructions in the context of a church where false things were coming in. Uh, people were being tempted to, to drift away from the gospel, to drift away from the grace of God and the word of God, and, and Paul saw the need for men who would be able to articulate what is true, to articulate what God had said and taught, and to be able to defend against those things that were errors. It's important to note here that this does not require advanced degrees. This does not require uh, an abundance of schooling and lots of letters after your name or anything like that. It rather requires a faith in Jesus Christ, a relationship to the living God through Jesus, and regular exposure to and submission to the Bible, uh, an understanding of what the Bible says and how it impacts our lives so that the elder will be able to teach and give spiritual instruction to the church. Paul highlights other character issues, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, which means he's just not argumentative. He's not looking for a fight. It's not divisive, constantly pushing his own views on others at the risk of their upsetting him, but rather gentle, gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Jesus highlights love of money as a top competitor for love of God. He says that you cannot serve two masters, uh, loving money versus loving God. And so the elder has to be one who resists that temptation uh, to have a love of money because that commitment will often crowd out his commitment to walk by faith and to serve the living God 
even when it cost him uh, financially, potentially. Paul highlights finally the need for maturity in verse 6. He's not to be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. There's a measure of wisdom in, in uh, helping somebody to grow in the Lord, in knowledge and in godly maturity before they step into the role of leading others within the church. Uh, several years ago, uh, y'all may remember the football player Deion Sanders, a great football player, uh, came to Christ, had a public conversion to uh, Jesus as his Savior, uh, and he was very kind of at the beginning, very eager to start teaching others to be in a position now that he had come to Christ. He was excited about it. There was a sense of urgency as he had embraced the good news of salvation by grace. He wanted to tell others about it. But he wisely said, I'm not going to do anything immediately. I feel like I need to learn first. That's part of Paul's point is that there's a risk. You send somebody who's brand new up to the front line they're not prepared, they're not well-equipped, there's a high risk, as Paul says here, for not only condemnation, but falling into reproach and the snare of the devil. Uh, it's important that those who serve in this office exhibit a godly maturity. It's been tested. It's been seen. Uh, they're not uh, brand new and easily swayed, perhaps, from what is true and needed. So there's a need for maturity. As we look at the qualifications of the elder, uh, there are, I think, two false responses to going through these qualifications. Uh, one response might be to look at these qualifications and to simply say, check, I got it. I'm good. I can look at this. Uh, I meet these standards. I'm good. And there's a lack of self-examination, a lack of humility, a lack of perhaps self-awareness as we examine our lives in the light of God's word. These are, these are high requirements. Uh, I, I tell you, just honestly, working through this and trying to preach this to the congregation of God's people is very humbling because one of the things that you do as you study the Word is you start to look at your own heart. You start to see how the Holy Spirit is convicting you and how you fall short and how much you need God's grace. I certainly experienced that in studying this part of God's Word this past week. There is a temptation to kind of pass over that, perhaps, and say, check, I got it. Some of that has to do with the way the world views leadership. These are not the values of the outside world when it comes to leadership. The world looks for power. The Lord, world looks for influence. Sometimes the world looks to wealth and kind of earthly modes of success. And if, if a man has that, then that's viewed as a qualification for leadership in the church. And yet the church is a counterculture to the world. It's governed by the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the one who sets the standards for qualification in leadership in his church. So there's a tendency maybe to a false response rather to look at this and say, I got it. I'm good. Probably the bigger tendency, though, is to look at these qualifications and to say, woe is me, to perhaps have some measure of despair as you hear the high bar of Godly integrity that is required for those who are called to serve in the office of the elder in Jesus' church. I remember Wallace saying when he was serving at Second Presbyterian in Greenville that their pastor at the time, Paul Settle, preached through the qualifications for officers 
uh, in the church, and uh, the following Monday, several men began to file into his office with their letters of resignation from the office of elder, just placing it on his desk. He had dug deep. He had explained the qualifications, and their response to that was to say, I, don't, I in no way measure up to this. Sometimes that's the case. But it would miss the point completely if those were our only two responses, the false response of being puffed up, the false response of being in despair. Because we should not miss the point that part of what we're meant to uh, do as we respond to these uh, qualifications is to go to the one who alone qualifies us, to go to Jesus himself in repentance and in faith. Notice how Paul ends this chapter in verse 16 of 1 Timothy 3. Paul talks about the mystery of godliness, the elder's confession. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Those kind of brief statements are giving a snapshot of the life and ministry of Jesus, revealed in the flesh at his incarnation, vindicated in the spirit in his resurrection, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, and so forth. Jesus, Paul says, is the source of godliness. He calls it a mystery because in some sense we're supposed to look at these qualifications, look at the standard that God sets for holiness, and say, how in the world could any of us do that in our own strength? And Paul's response is, you can't. <laughs> but Jesus can, and he does. He is the one who qualifies you. In Jesus Christ, those who trust in him are clothed in perfect righteousness, his righteousness. He makes you qualified before God to stand in his presence, accepted and adopted as his beloved children. In Jesus Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit who works in us to remake us after the image of Jesus Christ, to grow us in godliness. And so the elder can only be qualified if he is going to Jesus and laying humbly at the feet of Christ, walking in repentance and faith, and asking the Lord to bear in him the fruit of godliness. Now, let me just end with a couple points of application for us, very briefly. For those who are in the congregation, perhaps not seeking office or not serving uh, in office in the church, uh, what should you do? Well, the main thing for you to do is to carry these qualifications in front of you as you consider men that you believe are called to serve as officers in the church of Jesus Christ. Your nomination, your election does not make them called. It recognizes God's call in their lives. And so it's important for you as members of the church here uh, to evaluate men in the light of what God's word says. Is there a fundamental integrity and godliness in this man's life uh, such that they could lead by example in the church of Jesus Christ here? I should also say to all of us, in a certain sense, we're all called to godly integrity of the kind that Paul lays out here. There's not one standard for officers and one standard for those who are not officers. We're all called to exhibit Christ-like character and godly integrity 
in all that we do. And so all of us, uh, humbly, and in our various relationships and so forth, all of us should seek to grow in godliness, uh, whether it's connected to serving as an officer or not. For those who would desire uh, to serve as an officer, I think it's important to ask yourself some questions. Are you drawing near to Christ and depending upon him for forgiveness, for grace, and for godliness? Are you accountable to others in discipleship? Are other people in your life who can, who can call you out and encourage you to follow Jesus faithfully? Are you accountable to others in your Christian walk? Do you love and care for the church at Filbert? It's not just about personal character, but about your character among and in service to the people of God. And so may we all uh, be drawn to Jesus as the source of godliness, as the one who qualifies us. And as we consider those whom we may nominate to this office, may the Lord give us wisdom in that task. Would you pray with